At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we kick off the new year, we invite you to tune into our current series, The Forgotten Virtue, Learning to Love Again, where we'll discover how God defines love, Christ personifies love, and the Spirit empowers us to love one another. Together, we'll experience healing and hope in the love God designed for us, a love we carry through every season of life. Good morning. Good to see you guys. If you have a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to open it with me to the book of 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, if you're joining us from home or online right now, we want to say welcome to you as well. We're going to be looking at 1 John 3 verses 11 through 18 this morning. And uh, while you're turning there and finding that, I wanted to actually take just a few moments uh, this morning to uh, kind of offer some comments uh, in response to my sermon from last week. Uh, So I know that there were several people who were uh, a little bothered within our church family um, from some comments I made from last week's sermon. And I know we live in a crazy time, and so I just wanted to take a couple minutes and kind of address that and just give you a chance maybe to hear from my heart for a moment. So... um, The first thing is, I want you to know that every time uh, I step into the pulpit, I do so with great reverence for uh, what this represents. So I believe that the time where we gather in worship and come before God's word is a sacred act, and I don't take that act lightly. You know, James tells us, uh, let not many of you be teachers, because you will endure a stricter judgment. And I know that I will stand before the Father, and incur a greater judgment than many of you for being a teacher of God's word. And so I try to hold the responsibility that I have with preaching with great uh, reverence. But even with that, I recognize that um, I am a fallible human being. It's a great mystery to me why God chooses to use sinful human beings like us to be part of his mission and his work in the world, to carry his word and proclaim his gospel. Um, And I recognize that I'm prone to mistakes and errors myself. I am certainly not perfect in any way. And each week, I leave this pulpit thinking, I wish I would have said that a little bit better. I wish I would have been a little clearer. I wish I could have helped a little bit more in this area. And, um, you know, I know that that there were many that were upset last week because they felt like I was painting with too broad a brushstroke or not necessarily balanced in what I said, uh, and I recognize as I, as I process myself that I wish at times I had been more precise in addressing religious uh, political extremism as I saw it, and I wish I'd clarified things a little bit better. You know, I'm still trying to grow, and I'm sorry for the way sometimes I'm not as precise as I want to be. I don't hit the nail on the head as much as I, uh, as I like, um, but I want you to know that, um, you know, any time that I say something that might be confusing to you, might be upsetting, that might be misunderstanding, I am always up to have a conversation. Um, I put myself in the lobby after every service. My door is always open. My phone is always available. I am happy um, always to have a conversation and to let you know what my heart is um, and to talk through whatever it might be that was bothering or, uh, or upsetting to you. Um, and I'm thankful for the number of you that did this this past week and I was able to have good conversations. Uh, The second thing I want you to know is that when I step into this pulpit each week, um, I come with one singular aim. It is to proclaim God's word and apply it in our lives and community in such a way that it leads us all to Jesus. 
I do not use and will not use this pulpit to push political narratives or agendas. I'm not interested in controversy for controversy's sake. My goal is only Christ, his gospel, and his word and how it relates to our lives. And so if I speak to politics, it's only because I believe Christ is Lord of all the areas of our lives and that all areas need to be brought before his throne. If I'm challenging in my sermons, it's because I want us to love Jesus with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength because he is worthy of all of it. And if I'm intense, it's because I feel a passion for your soul. I want you to know and experience the salvation that is found in only Jesus Christ and so please know that what I say each week is always with a heart of love. It is with a desire to point you to Christ and for you to find your full self in who he is. So, with that said, <laughs> you don't have to applaud, thank you. With that said, let's turn to 1 John chapter 3 and open God's word together. I'm going to read from verse 10 through verse 18 this morning and then pray for us and then we'll jump into the passage. 1 John 3.10 says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this, we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Would you pray with me? God, we come grateful for your pure and enduring word. It is your word that stands forever, and we're so grateful that you, through it, reveal more of yourself. And so we come this morning, God, to encounter you, to learn more of you and your ways. Help all of us to have ears to hear and hearts ready to receive. God, what is of me, let it fall away, but what is of you, what is of your word, may it pierce May it call us and convict us and move us towards being the people that you created us to be. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you and you alone this morning, Lord Jesus. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. In 2016, Kate Starbird, Leo Stewart, Emma Spiro, and Amr Arif, researchers at the University of Washington, began a study on framing. Framing is the way in which we see the world. It's how we interpret new information that we encounter. And so when we interpret new information, many of us operate with some sort of frame, some way 
that we shape and interpret that, ref- that information based on past experiences. These researchers were specifically looking at how people framed conversations that were happening around the Black Lives Matter movement via social media, and specifically, they wanted to look at Twitter. As they studied through this during this time, their research showed that people generally framed their conversations either via support or disdain for the movement, and that they framed them often aligned with their own political leanings. In fact, you can see from one of the graphs from their study where they plotted out and tried to show the way different people framed the information that they were encountering, encountering on social media, that they tended to frame them towards one side or the other. Now, here's where it gets interesting. While they were doing this research, in November of 2017, the House Intelligence Committee released a list of accounts that were associated with Russia's internet agency, which is connected with the Russian government. And here's what the researchers kind of accidentally discovered while they were studying this framing. What they found was that Russian troll accounts were acting as caricatures of politically active U.S. citizens and then strategically tweeting and retweeting on both sides of the issue. If you look at the graph above, the blue represents the tweets that we saw before. The orange represents fake accounts that were essentially regurgitating information that were not real people. Listen to one, what the, one of the lead professors, Professor Starbird, commented on the research from their study. She said, one of the goals of this work was to sow division, to put pressure on the fault lines in our society, a divided society that turns against itself, that cannot come together and find common ground, is one that is easily manipulated. Look at the orange accounts on the graph and how they're on the outside of the clusters. Perhaps you can imagine them literally pulling the two communities further apart. Russian agents did not create political division in the United States, she says, but they are working to encourage it. Now, I share this with you not to give commentary on the influence of Russian government on American politics. That's not the point this morning. But instead, to point out the fact and reality that we live in a world that at every turn, even when we are unaware of it, is trying to move us away from a posture of love. We've been in this series together that we've called The Forgotten Virtue, Learning to Love, where we've been engaging the letter of 1 John as he encourages us to learn to love, love the way Jesus loves. But we live in a world that is constantly This is one example, you could look at several, that constantly is seeking to pull us towards hate, towards division, and away from love. But there's actually, I think, a deeper problem that this research highlights as well. And that is that you and I are prone towards hate. One of the fascinating things in reading this study was that one of the researchers, Amr Arif, recognized even when he knew that these were fake accounts, that the bias of his own heart, when he looked at tweets that were against his leaning, he was easy and could readily dismiss those as false information. 
But when he was engaging tweets that confirmed his leanings and bias, even when he knew they were fake, he said it was still hard for me to see them as propaganda. You see, it isn't just that they're pulling us to one side, it's that we, and I love Amr's comments because I think it recognizes that our hearts are prone towards division. Our hearts are prone to lean and pull towards one side of the other, not just in this, but in all sorts of issues, all sorts of ways in our world. Our hearts are desperately wicked. And even when we have the right information, we still struggle to love and believe the best of others. And this morning, we come to a passage that wants to challenge and encourage us in where our hearts at are, in where our hearts are at in regards to love and hate. Because for John, one of those things is of God, and the other one isn't. In fact, he gives us a stark comment in verse 10 right away when he says, this is, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. John, throughout this letter, has continued to encourage us not only to be children of righteousness, but to be children of love, who love others. And once again, he comes to encourage us to think deeply about where our hearts are at and to deal with the hate at, that lies at times in the darkest parts that we don't even like to admit. And so John, again in verse 11, gives us that familiar command that we've seen in this letter before. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. But then he goes on, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. He moves from the call to love to now dealing with the issue of hate. And John begins to want to unpack for each of us that one of the things we need to recognize about hate is that hate takes. Hate takes from us as human beings. And so he says, when it strives and we strive to learn to love, we should not be like Cain. Now you might be sitting there and be like, well, who's Cain? Why should I not be like him? I don't even know who that is. Isn't that like a wrestler or something? I don't know. Well, no, he's actually referencing one of the earliest people within the Bible. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible and the story, we find Cain's story very early on. It's actually in Genesis chapter 4. And you don't have to turn there. I'm going to put it on the screen for us. But I want to read it for a moment so that you can catch who Cain is. So in Genesis chapter 4, it says, Now Adam knew Eve's wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. So Adam and Eve were the first human beings. After they fell and were removed from the garden, they had children, and their first two children were Cain and Abel. Now it says in verse 3, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, 
Really, to rule over you is what that word means. But you must rule over it. So you have Cain. Cain brings an offering to God, but Cain just does it out of religious duty. He doesn't bring his best. He doesn't do what's righteous. Abel, on the other hand, brings what is righteous before the Lord. He gives the best of his sheep. And so God has regard for Abel, but not for Cain. Cain, obviously in this moment, is filled with all sorts of jealousy, envy, frustration, anger. And God comes and challenges Cain and essentially says, listen, if you had done what is right, won't won't it be accepted? But you didn't do what is right. And because you didn't do what is right, sin is now seeking to control you. It's seeking to take over your life. And how does Cain respond? Well, Cain, verse 8, Cain spoke to his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And so here we have the first death of a human being after God's creation and after the fall. And Cain becomes a symbol throughout the story of someone who willfully gives themselves over to sin in a way that leads to the highest degree, of, one of the highest degree of sin, to take the life of another human being. And so John uses Cain then as a symbol to encourage us in how we then think about love. And he says, we should not be like Cain. Right? Cain becomes this symbol for evil in the world, for someone who is under the control of sin and willingly submits themselves to the way of the world that leads them away from God. He's a symbol for evil in the world. Right? We, we get how we use people or names as symbols for evil. When you use the name Hitler in our society, right? That, that's a name that we use to kind of symbolize atrocious evil and sin. Well, that's what John is using Cain here as the symbol and his story as a symbol. And what he's doing is he's trying to highlight an important spiritual principle for us. Because essentially, why does Cain murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And he goes on to say, well, then don't be surprised that the world hates you. Don't be surprised when you do righteous things that people that are unrighteous hate you for those things. Right? The, the reality of our world is those who do not do what is right hate those who do. We know this. Right, so um, I grew up, I was the, uh, the oldest of four uh, siblings. I have two brothers and a sister below me. And uh, I was a rambunctious child, so I was, the, I was always testing the boundaries of my parents. That was just... I don't know if it's an oldest child thing. I don't know. I used to tell my siblings, you should thank me. I broke mom and dad in. You had it so much easier, right? But that was just kind of, I had to learn the hard way a lot of times. Well, my next youngest brother, he was the much more compliant and obedient child, right? He, he was the one who was actually listened to my parents and did what they would do or what they asked him to do. And of course, me, as the one who's always pushing the limits and boundaries, would get frustrated with that. And and my other siblings at times would too. In fact, we started to nickname my brother the golden child. That's what we would call him. Well, of course, Josh is the golden child, right? And really, at the end of the day, it was our issue. It was our disobedience that caused us to want to label him and despise him as if following his parents was wrong somehow. But the truth is, all of us struggle with this. We don't like people that expose our sin. 
when there are people who are righteous in areas that we are unrighteous, we push them away. We resent them. We start to despise them. We label them goody two-shoes or whatever names we can to try to say, well, because we don't like our sin to be exposed. You see, hate, hate takes away from righteousness. Hate causes us to look at those that follow the way of God and to go, eh, let's put them at arm's length. And John has been encouraging those that follow Jesus to pursue righteousness. We, we are called to pursue that. We should live as golden children. Not self-righteously, not because we're perfect or better. Certain, we are all marked by sin, but because we're pursuing God's ways. The work of sanctification in our life is us learning to grow in holiness and righteousness the way God calls us to, and we should pursue that. But no, as you pursue that, there will be in people in the world who will put you at a distance, who will divide you, who will try to hold you back, because they don't want your righteousness to expose their unrighteousness. And so we must be careful not only to be people who keep those that are righteous at arm's length so our unrighteousness isn't exposed, we must also be careful that we pursue righteousness and recognize that there will be times where we're kept at arm's length because hate takes away from righteousness. But hate doesn't only take away from righteousness, it actually takes away from life itself. You see, John highlights that we're supposed to be distinct. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. But then he says, whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John makes an interesting and fascinating connection here between the idea of hate and death, between hate and murder and the taking of life. And in many ways, John is just bringing to bear on this audience the same connection that Jesus makes in his teaching. If you actually go back to Jesus' most famous sermon in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes this similar connection between hate and murder. This is what he says in Matthew 5, 21. He says, You have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. We all can affirm that, right? Those that murder are liable to judgment. But here's Jesus. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, this is interesting when you look at Jesus' words here. That he draws this connection between anger, insult, foolishness. And essentially says, those that do these things are just as liable as a murderer. You see, because Jesus is beginning to make connections with our heart. That's the problem. He wants to challenge our hearts. And what he recognizes is the issue that lies in murder lies at the root of every single one of our hearts. It's the dehumanization of others. Go back to that slide real quick. 
Dave, and I want you to see the connection that he does in Matthew 5 and how it increases. Anyone who's angry with his brother, so it starts in anger, it starts in frustration, and then he increases. They're liable to judgment. Then whoever insults his brother, often anger leads to insult. Anger leads to us putting others down. Anger leads to us calling others and separating ourselves from them, which is what we do when we create insults. And then here's the kicker, right? They're liable to the council, a stricter form of judgment in Jesus' day. And whoever says, you fool. Now to call someone foolish in biblical literature is to say they're outside of the way of God. That's what foolishness is. So Jesus is showing a process. Okay, anger. You're like, eh, anger, what's the big deal? Why is that likened to murder? Because anger is where we start to dehumanize. Anger creates and starts to create an us and them. And then it moves to insults. Then it moves to words that separate. Then it moves to the point where we begin to think people are inferior to us and to our way, our community, our people. Psychologists call this, in our world, othering. Othering is when we treat people from a different group as essentially different from and inferior to the group that we belong to. And Jesus challenges us in the Sermon of the Mount to say, be careful of what's in your heart because it can lead you to a place where you see yourself as superior and you separate yourself from other people. And you do it in hate. And so when John picks up this language, and you can go back to verse John, when he picks up this language and essentially says that when we hate our brothers and everyone who hates his brothers is a murderer, what he's saying is that is the way of death. When we create others, when we create separation. And we do this all the time. Right? We do it in fun ways. When I moved to Michigan several, or when it, last year, right, I had many people from Ohio, where I came from, who were like, you're moving to Michigan? You're going to be around those people, that state up north? And I, you know, and I know Michigan fans can feel the same way about Ohio State. I know you can look at us inferior. I mean, it's hard to with our winning record over the last few years, but I get it, Right? <laughs> Just kidding. I just like to tease. I'm not, I'm just having fun, right? <laughs> but you know and I know. You've seen people that have taken that line too far. You've seen people who start to say, like, because of the sports team you root for, I already have a preconceived notion of who you are. Right? I've learned to love. I love the people of Michigan more and more the more I'm here. And if we do that over sports teams... How easily is it for us to begin to do that in other areas of our life? Because someone's of a different race, a different nationality, a different ideology, a different culture. And if we're not careful, we start to create an us and them. We're right, they're wrong. We're more human than they are. We don't say that, but we feel it. And it's easy. We live in a world, even now, that encourages us to have group identity and then to separate that group for others in pursuit of power. And we must be careful because when we dehumanize, when we other, when we separate, we start to lose the way of love. A pastor that I served under that I loved so much, he once said, 
when I only see people as the embodiment of their ideologies and not as the person Jesus loves and died for, then we are in big trouble. And what John wants to remind us is hate takes our humanity away from one another. And that's what leads to death. It's why he says, where there is hate, you will not find the way of eternal life. You will not find the flourishing that God desires for all humanity where there is hate because hate dehumanizes. And when we dehumanize, we move towards death. And so therefore, we must be people who move away from hate and move towards love. Because while hate takes, what John wants to remind us is that love serves. Look what he says in verse 16. By this, we know love. How do we know love? What is love, right? Not just the question from the Hathaway song, so you can thank me later for when that's stuck in your head. But how do we know? What is love? What, what is it? How do we know it? Well, he gives it to us clearly. We know love because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You see, while hate takes, what John wants to remind us is that love serves Love gives its life for the life of others. Hate takes life from others. That's the difference. And John highlights the greatest example that we have of a love that serves, a love that willingly gives up its own life for the flourishing and life of others, Jesus. Because the reality that we see in the story and the truth of the gospel is that all of us, we are prone towards sin. We are haters, We are people who divide from one another. We fail to love God and love others in the way that God calls us to. And because of that, we deserve death. We constantly bring death to bear on our lives and our world. But the truth of the gospel is that Jesus willingly took the death that we deserve for us, paid the penalty for our sin, our hatred, on the cross, conquered it and rose to new life and then offers us the free gift of grace and salvation where we're rescued and saved from our sins and where we experience eternal life when we put our faith and trust in him. The gospel is the great exchange in which Jesus exchanges his life for our deserved death and in return gives us his life. And that's why John wants to point us to say, we need to be people who are marked by this same thing. We're called to follow the model Jesus gave. Love is to willingly sacrifice one's own life for the life and flourishing of another. Jesus did that for us, and we are called to follow that example in laying our lives down sacrificially for others. That's why He calls us that we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. But he wants to challenge us in how we actually seek going about that because that's a a large concept and and one that at times I think we can all wrestle with. What What does that look like? Like if I came to you and I asked you like, hey, would you be willing to, to lay down your life to protect someone, to love someone, to care for them? I think most of us in this room would say like, yeah, yeah, for sure. But like, what does that actually mean in like day-to-day life? I, lo- I love the 21 Pilots in their song Ride. Their frontman Tyler Joseph wrestles with this, comp- this idea. 
Right? He, he, he pens in, in that song, he says, I die for you, that's easy to say. We have a list of people that we would take, a bullet for them, a bullet for you, a bullet for everybody in this room, but I don't see many bullets coming through. See many bullets coming through. It's like, oh yeah, I'll die for you, but I mean, that, when does that happen? He says, metaphorically, I'm the man, but literally I don't know what I'd do. I'd live for you, and that's hard to do. And that's what John wants to challenge us to begin to think. Yes, we are to follow the example of Jesus who laid down his life for us. But that doesn't just come in a willful death for others. It comes in the daily self-sacrifice to love and care for others. See where he moves in the text? But if anyone, so we ought to lay down our lives for us. but if anyone, now he's going to give you an example here, right? An illustration. He said, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, so you have the resources to care for someone, to love them, to provide what they need, and you see that they have that need, yet closes his heart against him. See how he gets back to that heart issue again? How, can, how does God's love abide in him? You see, John's point is essentially... Love demands sacrifice, not only of our lives, but even of what we have in the pursuit of bringing life to others. And his essential point is, if we're unwilling to sacrifice our stuff to care for others, man, how are we ever going to follow a king who sacrificed his life? Start in the small ways, John wants to say. Don't just give lip service to the idea of dying for others. What are the practical things you can begin doing to bring life and flourishing to those in need around you, those that you encounter in your day-to-day life? Because it's easy to say, I love you. But that's not love. It's easy to tell my wife I love her. But love is when I demonstrate that through action. You see, that's why John gives us this call at the end, little children, which is his term of endearment for us. He says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. See, love, love is not just what we say. It's the actions that we engage to care for others in line with the gospel. It is deed and it is truth. Here's a challenging question. If people just looked at your actions, just what you did, would they say, that's obviously someone who loves Jesus and loves others? Right? Like, I feel that same tension. If you couldn't say it, they just had to evaluate your actions. Would they say that's a person marked by love? You see, John wants to call us to the challenge to say genuine love serves. Genuine faith results in actions of caring and loving for one another. The call that he wants to give all of us in this passage today is that you and I, we are called to follow the example of Christ and not Cain. We are called to follow Jesus, who willingly sacrificed. God didn't just say he loved you. Romans says, but God demonstrates 
He shows you. He puts action to his love. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't just say he loves you. He shows he loves you. And he shows the ultimate way he loves you by giving up his son to death so that you can have life. See, the world is constantly calling us to follow the way of Cain. It's constantly seeking and pulling us to have hate and division mark our lives, to separate ourselves from others that are different from us. From our social media feeds to the media we consume to the things we're easily entertained by, the world calls to us and says, live for yourself. Judge on your standards, your group above everyone else. But Christ calls to us and he says, no. Use your life for others. Use your group for the benefit and flourishing of the community that you're a part of. Put action to the call to love. Follow my example. And it's not a call just to adhere to the rules. Just to do what we should do. And just perform more religious duty. No, it's a call to exchange our hearts. It's a call to put our trust in Christ's gift to us. And when we do that, God changes our hearts. So they're not marked by anger and insults. They're instead marked by love and compassion. And that's what leads to life. We must be a people who seek to love and serve others self-sacrificially. To give up even what we have so that others can flourish and experience the life of Jesus. You know, tomorrow as a nation, we will honor the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And Dr. King, in many ways, is a reminder of the call that we are meant to love through demonstration, through action. He was a man that challenged the hate that exists within society and called forth the way of love. And he knew that if we were to truly walk in a way of love, then it had to come to the point of caring for others. In fact, in a sermon that he entitled Three Dimensions of a Complete Life, he encouraged a balance of love in three directions. That the first place we are to find and love and pursue love is vertically with God. That's the starting point for everyone. To experience the love of God in Jesus, to put our faith and trust in him. And then to experience the love of God in our own hearts and in our own lives, to experience the transforming power of it. But then that should lead us to be a people that love in action the world around us. He famously noted in that sermon, light has come into the world and every man must decide whether he will walk in the light of creative altruism or in the darkness of destructive selfishness. Will we walk in the light of being creative in the ways we seek to love and bring flourishing to the world around us? Or we will continue as John points us so eloquently, to be in darkness, to bypass those in need that we encounter on a regular, daily basis. You see, 
King goes on to say, this is the judgment. It's our love for others that displays where our true love for God is. And it's why he says life's most persistent and urgent question is what are you doing for others? Because it's the test. We've seen that. It's the test that displays where our heart is in loving God. And so hear me, you don't start by just saying, okay, well, I got to go figure out how to do a bunch of good stuff for other people. You start with God. That's always the starting point. You start with the gospel. You let it impact your heart. But when it impacts your heart, it will always lead you to being the sort of person that asks the questions, what can I do? How can I lay my life down like my Savior did for me so that others can experience life and blessing and flourishing around me? And so church, let's be people who follow Christ. Let's follow his example. Let's put our hope and our trust in him. And let that overflow into being a community that brings life to those around us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we stop for a moment to say thank you to you for the love that you've shown us in Jesus. God, we were all sinners fallen short of your glory, turned inward in selfishness that displays itself in the hate and othering that we do so easily and readily. And yet, in the midst of our sin, you sent your Son to die on that cross to pay the penalty for it and to rise again to display that he has defeated Satan and sin and death and to offer new life to us. And so we stand in this moment to say thank you, amazed by what you have so graciously given. God, I pray for anyone here who has not experienced your redeeming love in Jesus. I pray that you would help them this morning to have their eyes open, their ears open to see how much you love them, that it has been demonstrated, and that they would put their faith in him. And God, I pray for those of us that have experienced that salvation, who have experienced the love of God in our lives. I pray you would continue to move us to be people of love. Help us to reject hate where we see it, whether it's in our own hearts or in the world that so easily wants to pull us towards it. Help us stand firm with conviction following the example of Christ, laying down our lives to bring life and blessing and flourishing to those around us. Even now, as we prepare to worship, may we declare together with one voice, it's Christ we follow. It's his example we heed. Let us resolve to be the people that you desire for us to be and be marked by love, I pray. We love you and ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.